0: Today's episode of WMFA is brought to you by Creative Nonfiction Magazine. Simply put, creative nonfiction is true stories, well told. Learn more at creativenonfiction.org today. Welcome to WMFA, a podcast about why and how we write. I'm Courtney Ballastier, and this week I'm speaking with Summer Brennan, whose latest book, High Heel, is out now from Bloomsbury's Object Lesson series. Summer is a journalist and author. She received the 2016 Matthew Power Literary Reporting Award and was a visiting scholar at the Arthur L. Carter Journalism Institute at New York University. A longtime consultant for the United Nations, her writing has appeared in New York Magazine, Scientific American, McSweeney's, the San Francisco Chronicle, and elsewhere. Her first book, The Oyster War, the true story of a small farm, big politics, and the future of wilderness in America, was a finalist for the 2016 Orion Book Award. High Heel opens with Summer at the UN, a workplace of utmost formality, falling in a pair of heels. From there, the book embarks on a fragmented meditation on feminism, beauty, and politics, connecting a million dots along the way, from fairy tales to Sylvia Plath to Darwinian theory. Ultimately, I read High Heel as a meditation on power. The idea for the book germinated after the sexism Summer experienced upon publishing her first book, when she would regularly encounter men who dismissed her intelligence and authority on the subject she'd spent years researching, even going so far as to accuse her of sleeping with sources. Here, we talk a lot about feminism and femininity within the patriarchal power struggle, and the way that shoes, and clothing more broadly, are freighted with the weight of that struggle. A heads up that, in this context, we also briefly discuss rape and victim-blaming. If this is triggering, please skip from about the 3320 mark. That'll be right after our sponsor message to about the 3620 mark. As a writer, I also love High Heel, and the Object Lesson series more broadly, as an exercise in symbolism, a study of one object's myriad embedded meanings. Such an everyday yet iconic topic required a lot of research, from fashion history to biology. Here, we talk about Summer's system for organizing and synthesizing all that research, and how it caught the attention of TSA. We also talk about the book that inspired her narrative structure and the hard work of accepting your process. You can hear a bonus segment from our conversation in which we discuss how Summer crowdfunded more than $50,000 for her next book by joining the WMFA Patreon community at patreon.com slash WMFA podcast and pledging just $2 a month. In many ways, that ended up
1: being like the central question for me in, in researching the book is what is what does it mean to be a woman – what choices would we make outside of patriarchy? And we can't actually know what that would be like. And I think that's fascinating to realize that.
0: One of the things that was so exciting to me as a reader was how many dots you connected. And so I wondered if you could start by just kind of talking about where the idea for the book came from, if like one of those dots was an origin point or you know, kind of what what started you thinking about this?
1: Yeah, sure. I think it seemed as the idea kind of doesn't sound pretentious, but it sort of like coalesced from a lot of different directions. Like I felt like some different ideas were sort of m- like meeting at this at this idea. Um, I look, I, I first started thinking about writing the book in the summer of 2015. Um, and it was when I had my, my first book come out and, um, it was the most public I'd ever had to be as a writer. And so that was a new experience. And I felt that, I felt that I was having a lot of very gendered experiences around it. Um, but that also at the same time, I was working at the United Nations in this very formal work environment. And I was reading a lot of Helen Oyeyemi, mm-hmm. actually. Um, you know, I love her. And um, she deals so much with fairy tales and reinterpreting fairy tales. And so fairy tales were on my mind and these like sort of folk tales and the kind of dark understories to them. I think that definitely influenced me in sort of where I went with the book. And so so it came from a lot of directions my own life, encountering sexism in my own life, um, you know, being a, a working woman in a sort of traditional work environment in Manhattan. And, and yeah, and somehow I thought this would be, <laughs> you know, I decided to write a book about high heels.
0: Yeah. Um, can you talk a little bit more about working at the UN? Because that does set such a clear image in the beginning of the book. I mean, you have this anecdote about um, falling in a pair yeah. of high heels. Um, but it, it is, and especially, you know, I think for writers who maybe never feel totally comfortable in conventional work environments, like that's a very right. traditional work environment.
1: Oh yeah, I mean, in many ways, it, it's it's rare to find one that's as formal as that. I think nowadays. I mean, I used to joke sometimes it's a little like slice of the 1950s. Yeah. Um, before they renovated the building, which they did in the last you know decade, but uh, prior to that, the, you know, it was still very uh, there was like ashtrays built into the bathrooms because it was like from the 50s. Um, but I think you know, the work, the workplace is changing a lot for everybody and more people are dressing more casually. And so these things are, these things are changing. And so it, it makes the particulars of like the gendered landscape of, of work clothing changes as well. But, um, but for me, I spent, you know, um, nearly a decade in this environment and, um, sort of an easy shorthand for many women that worked there or, you know, came there for work, uh, was to wear high heels.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, the book is kind of full of this for me, actually, things that I've never thought about in quite that way. But once I think about it immediately, it makes like perfect sense. And it seemed, you're like, oh, my God, how did I not make that connection? Oh, yeah, yeah. Like, um, going back to the idea of fairy tales, um, how, you know, specifically shoes, of course, because that's the theme of the book. But I think you can probably extrapolate to, to you know, the kind of whole sartorial um, decision making process that for men, those are often um, those items often give them power. And for women, they are often their undoing. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's, that's so interesting. I think, you know, in like the modern um, sort of like discourse about clothes, I think that women are often given messages about clothes being empowering. I think that that's actually almost disproportionately like stated explicitly for women, Mm -hmm. but uh, traditionally, especially with fairy tales. Yeah. It's um, the, the idea of taking on power through clothes, whether it's a magic cloak or I mean, Little Red Riding Hood's hood really doesn't do very much <laughs> in the story. You know, um, it doesn't actually have any magical properties. But um, clothing that helps you is more likely to be had by like a man or a boy in a fairy tale. Um, whereas for for girls and women, it's much different. You know, we have like the red shoes in um, the Hans Christian Andersen story. You know, which are sort of like these demonic shoes that cause her all kinds of problems and um i mean and even Cinderella's shoes aren't really that innocent right <laughs> i mean they, they you know they do connect her to like a change of social status but but at least in the older stories you know some violence usually befalls her her stepsisters and you know that's explained because they're evil or they're jealous or they're bad in some way but you know, there still is like mutilation involved, you know? Right. So, yeah.
0: And it, it was really interesting for me reading this when I did, because I just finished uh Women Who Run With the Wolves. Oh, wow. Yeah. Which also like, so, so I feel like from all sides, it's just like this kind of revisiting of these fairy tales and and the ways in which they are kind of these coded messages for us to stay small and, you know, marry up and be... Be quiet. And yeah, absolutely.
1: Cool. Absolutely. And I think for me, like looking at this, and I think, you know, initially, I do think like the Helena Gayemi stuff was a big inspiration for me. I think it's a very, very different kind of literature, but just, you know, thinking about sort of the ways that these stories saturate our lives and saturate our thinking and um, that, you know, there's plenty of I don't know, to use the, you know, the strong female character kind of trope in fairy tales of like you know women and girls that um, uh, do heroic tasks and, you know, save the day. But but so often it's the power is like a power they have to acquire, like via or man, a man or like, you know, in spite of the, the tyranny of one or something like that.
0: Right. Yeah. Um, I really am curious about the structure which reminds me a lot of Maggie Nelson's Bluettes. I don't know hey, if that, if that yes. was like, yeah, where are uh, you were coming from? Yes, exactly. That's exactly where I was
1: coming from. So, um, <laughs> well, I um, it, the text sort of started to fragment on its own. So for people that haven't seen the book, it's it's broken up into pretty short sections. Um, you know, some are a few pages and some are just a paragraph. And so there's 150 of them. Yeah, and actually one of my editors, Christopher Shaver, suggested He's like, hey, do you know Maggie Nelson's bluettes? Like maybe what if you go in the direction of instead of fighting the fragmentation, like, you know, lean into it? And I just thought that was a fantastic idea. Um, and I love that book. And I think there's actually something about the short pieces that just give a different experience. I mean, somebody kind of jokingly, or maybe not jokingly, uh, compared it to when you're reading like a thriller novel. Okay. And the, you know, sometimes with those books that have the super short paragraphs, it's yeah. like he comes in his apartment and he finds, you know, the door is empty. And I mean, the door is empty, the door is open and he grabs his gun. And then, then there's the next chapter already. Like, you know, just like things like move quickly. Um, but also um, there's something about like putting the text and the ideas into these smaller segments that sort of invite Conversation, maybe right. in a way, um, and so I really liked that, and so I hope that you know at least some thread of that is you know comes across and um and then, in like a cheesy way, you know, I use this metaphor of a labyrinth throughout mm-hmm. the book, and i in a way, it sort of felt like you know you take a turn in a sense with each like little new section like you sort of just, it keeps you moving, i guess and and changing changing course,
0: yeah, absolutely, and I think another thing that that keeping them fragmented like that does really well is. You know, while there is a lot of context and, and exposition in the book as well, when when there are those short pieces, um, it really strips away and gets down to like how simple the underlying issue really is, which is just power.
1: Sure, yeah. Yeah, like you distill something down in a way. And I think, I mean, maybe I mean I didn't actually think of this till just now, but Um, I did actually take a long time writing, (laughs) writing this book, much to the chagrin of like my (laughs) publishers, um, no, they were great, but you know how it is. Um, but, um, so there was quite a lot of like distilling that happened and, and in a way, I mean, it's, I don't know, I like these, these stories that I reference, you know, frequently, of course the book has more in it than, you know, fairy tales and folk tales and myths, but there is something about these, like, you know, I don't know the truth of a of a story like that that has been like um boiled down to its core elements and like retold in different ways in different
0: places right um, can we talk a little bit about the process of pitching and selling the book? you know like what I feel like we don't <laughs> we don't often like talk about with nonfiction like what all has to go into how much work you're doing on the front end
1: yeah, I mean, uh so normally. I, I mean I always think that actually after I've pitched a book and I'm working on the book, I'm kind of horrified that I haven't done more work before mm-hmm. I get to that point, even if it's been years like it that's just part like the nature of it but um I mean normally you need a much more detailed um proposal but so pitching this book um you, you know they had a they had a form for the um for the submission process, mm-hmm. and you know normally you have to come up with your own um nonfiction proposal and there's kind of a general, um, like accepted outline for that. Um, and so normally I would work that up. I did for my, my first and my third book, which I'm working on now. Um, you know, and then your agents like, okay, this part could be a bit better and you know, all that. And then you go through the, the sort of hell of, um, (laughs) you know, having your book out on submission. I don't, I mean, I'm not a novelist, so I don't know how this works for, for fiction. I think that part might be similar (laughs) when you're waiting to see if anyone is going to, you know, likes your book or not. Um, and, and this, uh, which is, you know, always filled with, just despair and delusions of grandeur, both. And it's really fun. Um, but, but this one, because it was, you know, it just with Bloomsbury, it was just like, will they take it or will they not take it? Um, and, and they liked it. So, so here we are. Um, but it was not as stressful as it normally would be just because it was, you know, so targeted for this particular
0: series. Right. Right. Um, it's totally okay if the answer is no, but are you comfortable talking about some of what you experienced promoting the first book?
1: Oh sure. Um yeah, I mean I um you know, I think it's the kind of thing that any woman operating in in public, you know, quote public life uh experiences whether they're just a journalist that's you know either in front of the camera or interviewing people or having things published and then, you know, they they have to get I mean, I know so many women journalists who will um publish a story and then they'll get a bunch of emails from um readers, often male readers who have like you know very strong opinions about <laughs> what they've written um, not always with like the most um like impressive credentials on that like it's you know it's the like the mansplain thing of like. Like, how can you say it's this when I Googled it and I saw something right. you know? You know. Right. Um but that's like literally I mean, so so my book was um it was environmental uh journalism. It was about a like a political environmental conflict out in California and there was involved a ton of research. I did some primary research uh from uh documents in the nineteenth century and you know, I did a ton of work on it and um I was uh writing about a number of like um older male professionals in the book um and who then had opinions when the book came out. And so the ways in which my book was critiqued was sometimes very gendered. Um I was accused of sleeping with subjects in the book. Oh my god. Um, yeah, I mean you're like, you know, there was somebody that I interviewed, and of course that's I would have you know, never done that, would never do anything like that. I mean, I'm professional. Um But so, you know, I would have like there'd be an article about my book that would, um, you know, just like a a review or an interview or something, and it would show up. And in the comments, there'd be, well, you know, she was involved with the guy. So these are not even her ideas. They're his and things like that, which is ludicrous. And there's no truth to it at all. Um, And one interview a woman or interviewer, a female interviewer, commented on it to me she's like some of this feels kind of sexist do you think so this is sex I was like hmm, it's funny you should say that because yeah
0: yeah <laughs> I think this is something that like every female journalist probably has stories about I mean I I don't have anything to that scale but I've definitely had male interview subjects like comment on my appearance in inappropriate ways or like yeah. which like is anyway. For, you right, know, when you're right, like exactly. in a professional situation. Um, and just these things that, that make you uncomfortable. And then, yeah, to kind of, I mean, it, and especially, this feels like such a cliche, dumb thing to say, but especially in the moment we're in right now, it's just right. like this this repeated message of just like, how dare you think that you know anything?
1: Well, exactly. And, and you know, I mean, comments on my author photo, I mean, comments on the, you know, and it's that kind of thing where it's like, you know, as women, and this is what I kind of get into in the book to some degree, is that you sort of can't win because it's like to be taken seriously, if you're too feminine or like traditionally pretty or something like that is a way to discredit your intelligence or whatever. But of course, if you don't present that way, that's another way to discredit you because they'll make you invisible or they'll say, you know, well, what's wrong with her? She's, you know what I mean? Like there's always some way to kind of take authority away from you.
0: Absolutely. I'm I'm flipping quickly through to try to see if I can find this exact quote, but you have a great line that I underlined about um you know, if if feminine in the case of high heels if feminine attire isn't sensible and then sensible attire isn't feminine, the obvious conclusion is that to be feminine is to be not sensible.
1: Exactly. Like to be feminine is to be without sense. That comes up again and again and again. I um well it's like this idea of sensible shoes. Mm-hmm. Um, which is a very gendered phrase, right? I mean, I guess you could say that men are wearing sensible shoes. And these things are changing, I think, you know, how we talk about this stuff, like pretty fast in some instances. But um, yeah, like I, you know, one time, um, I, I one of my vices is alas the you know, the website twitter.com. And um uh, sure. So and I uh I tweeted like one time, like, you know, what comes to mind when you hear the phrase sensible shoes? And, you know, um, a lot of the men replied ugly. So that was the word that came. Mm-hmm. It was ugly. Um, I also heard people state a lot of, um, like professions or social positions for women that like made them either like busy working or like not available to men in some way. I heard nuns, I heard librarians, I heard lesbians, I heard, um, you know, nurses. I mean, like it's, it's very interesting. Right. These like sensible, sensible shoes versus not sensible shoes. And, um, how can shoes be too sensible and why is sensible to use the, the word we use and and the implication like you said is of course that if you're feminine you can't also be smart or reasonable
0: Have some really uh, powerful kind of case studies in the book about one is, you know, probably very familiar to people with Hillary Clinton and right. how, and I remember this as this was happening, you know, like the, the, like, endless media cycles that were devoted to like what she was wearing and what she looked like and whether she was smiling enough, which isn't even part of our conversation. Oh, right. Just, like, yeah. But what I really, what really, really struck me, um, Maybe partially because this was news to me was the graduate student who was who had accused her advisor of sexual harassment.
1: Oh yes, and actually, since I wrote about her, she had an amazing memoir that just came out. It's Ava Hagberg Fisher, and the memoir is How to Be Loved, and it's a great book. Oh, great. so I want to like plug that. Um, yeah. So, yeah. I first knew, uh, came to know about her because of this article she wrote for the New York Times and she, um, had to, uh, make a complaint because she was being sexually harassed by, um, someone at her university and, um, in the book where, uh, she's starting out this difficult year. And of course, you know, the things she had to go through just to complain about this was, were insane. I mean, and totally irrelevant to whether or not a particular person had sexually harassed her. They asked her, and this was in her article, so I feel like I can say, but, um, you know, they asked her things like how quickly she slept with her husband when they first met um you know the ages of former romantic partners like as if this had anything to do with it as if like because she dated someone older at one point that meant that like all sexual attention from older men including a professor would like be welcome or something right. i mean like the, the 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 logical conclusion of these things are are not logical and so at the start of this she bought herself a pair of um ankle boots and she found that she couldn't wear them for anything related to this because they were like too sexy. I mean she found that to be taken most seriously she should wear she shouldn't wear her hair down and she shouldn't be photographed sitting down or at her own house. Um I mean all these different things that end up like telegraphing something about what kind of a person she is which is ridiculous and but yeah that she's trying to do something and And it kind of goes against a lot of the popular narratives that women can empower themselves by making these like choices about their personal appearance, I think, which is like a a thing that can be heard commonly that it's like, well, I'm choosing whatever it is, you know, the lipstick or jeans or a tight dress or sneakers or high heels because they make me feel empowered. And I think so much of the narrative is that if you feel empowered, you are empowered. Mm -hmm. And I think this is just an instance of finding out that that's actually not true right like a lot of the time
0: yeah which which really um again plays back into from a narrative point of view very nicely <laughs> to the to the <laughs> labyrinth idea because it, it is sure. just this series of turns that gets you nowhere
1: right and you think you're you think you're on solid ground when you're not you think you're heading in the right direction or like you're told that this choice like this choice looks like it will be the right choice and then because everything you know so far has led you to believe that and then you show up and it turns out that you know, that's the wrong choice. How dare you think that that would have been right. And for a book about high heels, it might seem weird that I I keep returning to this image of a labyrinth. I mean, I, I sort of justify it in the sense that, um, you know, our shoes are where we're going in life and where we've been in the world. And um, it's sort of like the, the path that women walk. And I found it to be very like not straightforward at all and very confusing. And I think, I mean, I feel confused as a, as a modern feminist sometimes. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, I don't, of course. right. I mean, I don't think there's a clear message and there's, all, you know, constantly debates, which I think should be had, but about like, well, is this making me a good feminist or what does it mean if I want to be a bad feminist and identify that? Like, where's the line between being like a bad feminist and like the fun excusing way that might be positive? Um, like the Roxanne Gay thing of like, look, it's okay for me to partake of patri- patriarchal culture to a degree because this is my culture right. if, and if I'm if I'm aware of it. But you know, when does that tilt into enforcing a harmful system?
0: Right. Well, and and a question that you raise here that um, is super powerful in this context is just like what what is a woman outside of the patriarchal culture? Like we don't actually know.
1: Yeah, I think in, in many ways that ended up being like the central question for me and in researching the book is what is, what does it mean to be a woman? Well, I mean, in even a broader sense of like who decides who gets to be a woman and who doesn't. And, um, but, but also just, yeah, what, what choices would we make outside of patriarchy? And we can't actually know what that would be like. And I think that's fascinating to realize that, that, um, yeah, I'm not advocating for that somebody should make decisions for women, but you know, we you make decisions from wherever you are based on whatever you can see from your vantage point, point. and if it's obscured by, um, by discrimination and oppression, and of course, you know, compounded. I mean, for women, but also compounded if you are, you know, not a white woman or you are not a cis woman, or if you're, you know, disabled or whatever. So, yeah.
0: Let's talk about the research process, um, because it, it really <laughs> is just like. And, and there were so many touch points that, like, I just personally was also very into. So, like, I don't know. It was, like, whenever you would talk about, like, Rebecca Solnit and Margaret Atwood and Virginia Woolf, like, all in the same place. I'm just like, <laughs> great. Okay, give me more of that forever. Um,
1: yeah. But, but, like,
0: how, you know, I imagine that that at one point this was all just a huge jumble of information. So, like, how did you yep. start going from one? How did how did you take all those steps and, and get from one piece of research to the next?
1: Process-wise, um, I kind of have like fallen into like a mode that's my mode of working and I just read a ton and I take obsessive notes by hand. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, and like one book always leads to like at least five to 10 other books that you want to read, right? Like either because the book cites those books or you're like, Oh, I never thought about this in terms of like a, you know, a Darwinian mate selection issue. Mm -hmm. What can I read about that? And who, you know, and all that kind of stuff. Um, so um I take uh gajillion notes by hand um in notebooks and then I don't know if this is what I meant, but you know well, and this then this is exactly
0: <laughs> what I meant. I, yeah. I I recently like switched to this on the recommendation of a friend like having a reading journal instead of just taking like marginal notes and, and I, yeah. I really like it.
1: Yeah, I, I actually started doing that too. Um I think I I I think to be sound really old world about it, um in like the 19th century or early 20th century, they called them common books, mm. I think, where you'd like write down, I'm probably misrepresenting common books, but this is, I've conflated them in my mind of, yeah, like when I'm reading even just yeah, a magazine or something, um, I'll write down quotes from it and things like that, that, that might inspire me or make me think. And um, so I fill lots of uh, notebooks up with these things. And so then I'll go back and um, type up all my notes then um, that I've written by hand and kind of like say I'm about like an organizer, you know, and put them with their little, you know, mini clips and all that kind of stuff. And, um, and then I try to like take an overview of like, okay, so this is sort of like my, these are like my fairy tale related things a little bit. And this is kind of like women's movement stuff. And I mean, there's overlap, of course, but, um, and then I read through and I highlight and I make more notes and then, um, and then I'm a note card person, mm. and so I like transfer things onto a gajillion note cards. Um, and when I was writing High Heel, it took me a really long time to figure out how I wanted to put it together. Um, and so I was carrying around like probably like 200 like note note cards for like way too long, um, like through various different countries and states where I was like.
0: (laughs) like, And is it like an each note card is like represents like a paragraph or something or like a chapter? Uh,
1: It's like something from the notes. It's still not like my own writing Right. usually, okay. or, or it'll be my, or it might be my own writing. It'll be like something I wrote that's in my notes. Cause of course, like, you know, your read notes from your reading is, you know, not obviously not just sure. quotes and it's then like what inspires you. So it could be that. So it's both, it's like, um, images that I've had or references or quotes. And actually I was, um, I got I was going through TSA and they like wanted to open my bag because they thought that my note cards were maybe currency
0: mm. of
1: some kind. like, they're like, why do you have all these little packets of paper? <laughs> and I was like, like, Oh,
0: trust me, that's worthless. Yeah. And I'm
1: like, no, 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 exactly. I'm like, this is worth no dollars. Like, don't worry. Um, cause, but this guy was just like, he laughed. He was like, why do you, and I think he even asked me like, why do you do this? And I was like, I don't even know.
0: Um, <laughs> well, I think that like for me, I- cause, I I do a lot of the same things that you're talking about. Yeah, I think for me what happens is like I I so crave a tactile step in the process. Yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean I think I'm a visual person too Mm -hmm. Um, and so I move them around like puzzle pieces and so then I like take over my floor. I mean if I do this for an article or something or somehow there aren't as many. I think the more I do this like the more note cards I end up with and so I'm going to end up having to like rent like a gymnasium to like (laughs) plot in my books but um so you know and then I put them out on the floor and just kind of like see what I have and try to like arrange them into something resembling um some kind of a narrative I mean it's interesting I mean I did this with my first book and I'm doing it with my third book as well and they they're not nearly as fragmented and mm-hmm. so I think um it might be something about the material so I don't always write in like little tiny chunks um but I realize now just talking about the note cards that the book might have seemed like it retained its note cardness, but actually it, it, it had to be like written cohesively and then sort of broken apart again.
0: And you, a lot of the book, um, you talk about being in Paris, which I know is also kind of the epicenter of the book you're working on now. So yeah. did that just kind of happened to be where you were or did, was there sort of a, a pull to, it, for the heel book to go to Paris?
1: Um, the Hill book was definitely influenced by being in Paris, but it was just happen it was just yeah. happenstance that um that basically had I been more on deadline, I would not have written the Book in Paris. <laughs> 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 I would have written it before I got to Paris. Um, and not have been like lugging my insane Borgesian note cards around with me. Um But um no, I think it was I mean, I think all books are influenced by place. Mm-hmm but I think it ended up, it ended up being an interesting place to write this book. I mean, even just from a straight up fashion history perspective, which the book is not, you know, a traditional fashion history at all. Um, which I hope I'm worried that people that are expecting that are going to be like pretty disappointed because they're like, why am I reading about Sylvia Plath? I hate you. Like, right.
0: what's <laughs> but I'm sure that uh, exists already.
1: It does exist. There's several wonderful books and that already t- talk about this in, in very smart, in-depth ways that are still fashion history, yeah. you know, with doing what I did. But, um, So there's, there's, so there's that, that I think was an interesting way of thinking about it. But also I think, um, since the book deals so much with, um, with sexism and, you know, women's role in public life, it was sometimes it helps you to think about that when you kind of look at it from a different angle or in a different setting. I think that sexism and misogyny and patriarchy operate differently in France than they do in the United States, Mm -hmm. um, in maybe subtle ways. I mean, it's not super different. It's still like, you know, a Western whatever country, but, um, it was, it was different in a subtle enough way that made me, I think, think, think about how sexism in the U.S. is differently. And just, you know, the fact that, um, that these expectations of women are kind of like evolving and manifesting in these like sort of different uneven patterns, like
0: in different places. Right. And, and, you know, I hadn't really thought about it until just now us talking this way, but, but maybe there's also something to like, you know, when you, cause, cause American women are the American kind of like female, you know, journalism world or, Mm -hmm. uh, fashion and lifestyle kind of world are, is obsessed with the way French women perform their beauty. Right. Um, Right. And, and maybe there is something about that, like what we see in that, I wonder, I wonder if what we see in that is a little bit more self-assuredness and a little more doing it for yourself.
1: Yeah. I really think that 90% of what we see, like, quote, we see in, quote, French women, I mean, I joke about this, but it's actually just universal health (laughs) care.
0: I love that. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean it. I mean, yeah. you know, no, what, for
1: sure. Like how to get skin like a French girl. It's like be less stressed out. You have free health care. It's really good. Like your prescriptions are really cheap. You don't have to spend money on it. Like, I mean, honestly, I, I really do think it's like 90% of like the French beauty, se- beauty secret even specifically is just universal health care. Um, so consider that America. But um, yeah, I mean, that is kind of an obsession. And, uh, you know, I'm not going to lie. It's a very stylish place, Paris. For sure. Um, oh, that's, yeah that's real, obviously, but, um, it, it's, it's different. Yeah. Se- sexism manifests different and differently in France. And, um, I'm not an expert on that. There are experts on those things. And, but just from my own experience, I've, I've said before, and maybe this doesn't even make logical sense, but I feel like it's more sexist, but less misogynist Interesting, in a way. And I wonder if that is because there's still, I think, a stronger like prescribed feminine role in many instances, mm. So maybe because there's still some more old-fashioned ideas around those sorts of things that women are threatening in a different way or less threatening in a certain way. I don't know. Right. Um, I should probably stop talking, like, about France and poor France before I, like, embarrass myself. And the French are like, please stop talking for us.
0: Um, so <laughs> Today's episode of WMFA is brought to you by Creative Nonfiction Magazine. For nearly 25 years, creative nonfiction has been fuel for nonfiction writers and storytellers publishing a lively blend of exceptional long- and short-form nonfiction narratives and interviews, as well as columns that examine the craft, style, trends, and ethics of writing true stories well told. Learn more at creativenonfiction.org today. America clearly is still at at its heart. A very puritanical place. And so I think Absolutely that even, okay. yeah. and, and this comes up a lot in the book as well. I, I literally wrote in the margin notes when you got to the Chrissy Hind anecdote just, oh, fuck oh, yeah. off. Like this idea <laughs> yes. of just like, well, you know, and and folks, um, you know, I can elaborate on this in the show notes because I don't have the exact page in front of me, but basically it's Chrissy Hind. Right. In a memoir, or or maybe in an interview for her memoir, um, yeah, yeah. letting her her gang rapists off the hook because yep. she was dressed inappropriately, quote unquote, inappropriately. Uh,
1: yes, it's page one hundred four. Like- <laughs> no, I mean, well, I have my book in front of me. No, yeah, she. Um, and yeah, she, I, so I, she
0: told her interviewer, you know, if you don't want to entice a rapist, don't wear high heels so you can't run from him. If you're yep. wearing that says "come and fuck me," you'd better be good on your feet.
1: Yep. And I don't want to single her out as like in any way, like especially evil, because I think that's like super common. Oh, way it's very common.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah. And so this is not like me going after Chrissy Hine or anything, but it's just it was just, oh, you know, one instance to illustrate this very commonly held idea among women and men. Mm-hmm. You know, people that have been the victims of assault and people who haven't that. Yeah, that it's your fault you know, that, that you weren't careful enough that, that it, that you can actually be your shoes fault. And that somehow it's just not even logical. I mean, it's like, so I should always wear running shoes so that I can run away from a rapist, like right. no matter what, because, you know, rapists are, I mean, it sounds paranoid to say rapists are everywhere, but what I mean is women are raped in all settings. They're raped in hospitals, they're raped at work, they're raped at home, they're raped, you know, at restaurants and bars and shopping centers and malls and in the woods. And I mean, you know, it can happen on public transport. I mean, There's nowhere, I'm pretty sure that I I can't think of, I mean, hopefully no women have been raped in space yet, but honestly, I don't know. So my point is, is that, you know, this idea that it's, you always have to be prepared for this and that if you make some kind of wrong choice that, you know, that that was on you. So there is something maybe about like America's puritanical past that it's like, if something bad happens to you, it's because you did something wrong. And I think that that's actually, I mean, not to get too far afield from from shoes and women and and violence against women, um, or and violence against non male people in general. Um, anyway, that I think that that actually manifests in other arenas too, like within our healthcare system mm-hmm. as well. Not to like bring back to universal healthcare, but I think even with that, there is this idea that like if you're sick, it's because you did something wrong, or if you if you need medical attention, it's your fault. And it's not the same thing as you know if you get raped and you're wearing high heels, that's that's your fault, but I think that there's, like, some kind of, like, I don't know, the philosophical kernel of the American experience that, that might be being expressed in these different ways.
0: Right. Well, and, and just the idea of how much more likely women are to be dismissed by doctors or told they're overreacting or... Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, and and also, I mean, it
1: gets into a central issue of the book, of course, is that of women's pain and how much yes. we ignore physical pain in women. Um And, you know, there's studies about this, that like, uh, women are not believed when they report pain to doctors, they're, they're, um, like under their pain is underestimated and they're more likely to be given sedatives, um, than Mm painkillers than men are in the same situation presenting with the same symptoms. Um, which is, sounds very 19th century, you know, it's like, she should be sedated. She's hysterical, you know? And she's like, no, I have a kidney stone. Like, please help or whatever the problem is.
0: Yeah. Right. I was really interested in this book the way that that conversation kind of dovetails with um the this larger question of what beauty is. Yes. And um you have this uh this line that that really struck me um what if we as a patriarchal society have decided to find beautiful in women that which causes suffering? What if the suffering is actually the point?
1: Yeah. Yeah, I mean I I came to that. <laughs> um I think it's kind of it's sort of impossible if you follow these lines of thinking far enough, far enough, not to to ask that question um, of like what, why? Because you know, beauty is not an objective thing. And I think mm-hmm. uh, I mean, I remember, I remember like being like twenty five and on a date with some man at some point, and um, and him saying something. I actually like got up and left the date because this guy said he's like, you know, women are. It's so silly that we pretend that we had different beauty standards, like in different times. Like beauty is beauty. Like you know, like. It's, it's not different now than it was like 100 years ago, no matter what like the paintings tell us is true. And, and this actually that's just not not true at all. I mean, it's, sure. um, and it's not just like beauty, it's not just beauty standards changing. But I think that very often there's this idea that um, there's some sort of like noble biological choice behind what we find beautiful. Um, especially lately, I think that it gets tied to health a lot like like especially like so women that might fall outside of certain like societal um expectations like for example like uh women who are told they're too fat or something like they get sort of concerned trolled about their health and it's like you don't know anything about my health like this is it's that's not what it is it's it's very much like a corrective trolling to be like you're not obedient enough in my mind. So, you know, for whatever like, you're not following the rules according to me. So I'm going to give you a hard time, but like people pretend it's about health anyway. Um, but like, what the hell is it? Like, what is beauty actually? And I think like the question of what is beauty on like a grand philosophical scale is, is a different question than like, why do I want to go home with this woman at the bar instead of this other woman at the bar? Um, but at the same time, um, that larger philosophical question of beauty gets sort of like tacked on to the small, like, do I want to, you know, get busy with you or not question. And so like, yeah, it's, it's weird. And so you think about what, what is beauty and what purpose is it serving? And I'm, you know, one of the arguments that's made for high heels, um, is that they are super normal stimuli and that's like something in the animal kingdom that you know is really exciting for an animal because it's an exaggerated version of something they would normally experience um and so like you know an example in nature might be uh there's birds that like to sit on these like pale blue speckled eggs and so if you give them really bright blue eggs with big black dots on them they're like wow these are like the best eggs i've ever seen i'm going to sit on these Mm -hmm. even though they're not real and they ignore their real eggs so um so sometimes the thing can be like totally exaggerated and not even make any sense and and humans respond in this way too um i mean you have to look at pornography to see there's all kinds of like exaggerated like symbols of um sexuality and the female body and things like that Um, but so the question is though, if it's a stimulus that's being exaggerated, like what is that stimulus really? And so if you're thinking about something like a high heel, like what is there's, I mean, there's nothing natural about the human, I mean, about the woman, a woman's body that has a, like a spike on her foot. So it's like, is it really that women walk differently and that, um, a high heel exaggerates this quote feminine walk or is it something else? And I think we have to ask like, is it more akin to like you know a limping animal? It's like a, right. like more appealing to a predator. I mean that sounds that sounds extreme, but I so much of beauty practices over time make women weaker and easier to dominate, even just in a physical sense. Right. You know we're supposed to be smaller, thinner, less muscular, more you know more youthful seeming. I mean so much of beauty is focused on making grown women look like adolescents. Mm-hmm. Um, which is another, you know, especially in the animal world, like makes somebody easier to dominate by being young. Um, so I think that there's maybe darker things behind all that.
0: Right. Oh, well, and, and I was really struck by just a thing you say, um, in the beginning, because I am also tall, I'm six feet tall, and the oh, yeah. way and the way that you talk about um, men informing you of your own height defensively as if you if as if it were an argument that you started, so yeah. like, it's not the height, <laughs> no, because the height is upsetting it's it's challenging, yeah.
1: Yeah. Right. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not even like that tall. I'm five nine, but apparently that's tall enough, like, you know, to elicit this response. And I also often wear shoes that have like a A couple inches of a heel on them. Um, A lot of men's shoes have, you know, add an inch or two to their height as well. But um, you know, yeah, it's a strange thing. Exactly, it's not just that we want women to be as tall as possible. I don't think it's it's actually the height. And I I know that um, more petite women have different things to say about high heels. And you know, I do want to make a nod to the fact that there there's a legitimate argument for the change in respect you may get when you can like look a male colleague in the eye versus like staring at the middle of his shirt, you know, or whatever. Um, but you know, I think that, that if it was just about the height, then men would wear them too because men are men, men benefit from being tall more than women do. Right. I mean, there has been studies about like CEOs or successful men that like being taller can be an advantage just professionally among other men, not just, you know, in a romantic setting, you know, either heterosexual or not. Um, but that there is something that can be professional advantage, but they're not wearing high heels. Yeah.
0: Um, before we start to wrap up, can we talk a little (laughs) bit about your writing process? Yeah, sure. Just like, like really nuts and bolts, like how you like to get work done in a day.
1: Oh yeah. Um, Painfully and with candy. No, (laughs) um, (laughs) um, yeah, I, I mean, I sometimes feel like my ability to write is like this large, heavy, cumbersome, like mechanical device uh-huh. that it sometimes takes a while to get it moving and like get the parts moving and get it going. I don't know what I'm imagining some like, like arcane, like agricultural. Right.
0: That like hasn't thing. been turned on in a long time. Yeah. And, like, yeah.
1: yeah. Like, like, just, like heave this thing out of the barn and be like, okay, like, I don't know. some kind of whatever uh, my imaginary like writing machine mind. And, um, and then once I get it really moving and the gear is oiled, then then that's kind of hard to stop for me. So I think um, with the writing, I have to do all kinds of crazy prep work to get there. And um, I mean, I don't know. Like I, I think that it's you could kind of get into a like a groove or a mode that could be hard. I, I tend to um, I try to make myself do a, a crappy rough draft um, where I don't like read over things. I just try to get something on the page and then I can like pretend someone else wrote it, which is and be so
0: like- difficult.
1: <laughs> and it's, no, it's really hard. And you have to do so many, it's like, you know, I, I mean, it's like, it's like, you sound like an addict in your head. Yeah. You're just like, any excuse, you know, it's just like, this time is going to be different. I'm just going to watch like one episode of this television show, you know, like whatever, like these weird calculations you do in your mind to like get out of doing it. It's, it's totally absurd. Um, it's embarrassingly hard for me to write. I think (laughs) and I know that some people it's maybe it's super hard and some people have it easier, but it's, it's hard to make myself do it. So, um, I try to get that crappy first draft out. So just so that I have something to read and be like, who wrote this? This sucks. Okay. (laughs) Cause then you can kind of be like, well, I could do better than that. Like, you know, I mean, almost make it into, and I actually really enjoy editing other people's work. Um, I haven't been doing much of it lately, but I did a little bit of editing in a small newspaper. And so I actually really like editing. And so if I can just convince myself that it's like the work of some misguided, but promising different person, that's not me. (laughs) Um, it can be sort of easier to get to like the next draft and, um, And then I end up just like obsessively rereading and rereading, you know, a hundred times, making changes until I can read through it without like getting snagged, right? On a sense, you know. So I just think it's a pretty common way. It's like it's sort of like a rock tone, like you're smoothing down the the rough edges of something.
0: Yeah. 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 I might try that kind of like dissociation idea. <laughs> Just yeah. be like, oh well bless her heart. She's gonna get there though. Right. I mean it's yeah, I mean I don't literally be like, Who wrote this? Right, be-. right. But you know, there's
1: something there's and it's scary to read that draft. I mean, I've I've got one sit I've got a, you know, I've got drafts from of my next book that are like that right now that it can be scary to dive in. Um, because then you can you you find out the state of things. And I actually find there's often pleasant surprises. Yeah. Um I, I, I think with the, you know, if I can convert anyone that is afraid of doing like a, you know, whatever you want to call it, like a trash draft or a shitty first draft, if people are reticent, is that I'm often surprised how much I can keep, honestly. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes it's all terrible. And I'm like, okay, but still just like reading through a terrible version of what you're trying to say can also even just that, even if you keep no sentences whatsoever, it can help like crystallize it in your mind to to start over.
0: Well, I want to I wanna maybe wrap up with um, this question. What does creative satisfaction look like for you right now?
1: Oh, gosh. Um, right now, I mean, the first thing that came to my mind actually is about what's actually about process more than about, like, the outcome. Like, I might want to say, like, creative satisfaction is, like, here's my chapter and it's done and it's great. I'm going to send it to my editor. Um, but I think almost more important is just, like, the – feeling of I'm in a good working mode right now. Cause sometimes it can be so hard to get into that. So it's like, I like right now I'm feeling, I mean, I'm very behind, but I'm fairly satisfied creatively with what I'm doing just because I am focused all day. Like, I, I mean, right now I'm working like 15 hour days on this book and um, which is a lot and not everybody, you know, has the luxury to do that. But um, yeah, I think it's just like being able to really focus on it and um be in a mode where I've done enough work that I that I can move forward and I don't know maybe that's like a sideways answer to that but but I think it it is just about process and feeling at ease to at ease in the process and like stimulated by the process
0: no I love that that's like a real a, it's it's similar to like a real goal that I'm trying to achieve uh right now which is to just sort of like accept my process which I find like I have a really hard time doing
1: yeah that's hard. no, I totally agree. I mean for me, I have to accept like the finickiness of my process and I can be a little obsessive um I think in my process and some of that's probably fear, but uh I know there's people that could you know like read five books and not need to take notes that are then like handwritten and then typed up and then highlighted and then turned into note cards but I- I'm just not that person, you know, and, and, and honestly, I get more work done more efficiently when I just accept that and just like do it.
0: Awesome. Well, that sounds like a great place to wrap up. Thank you so much for taking time today. It was really great talking with you. Thank you. Yeah. I'm running around a bit, so I'm a little bit, you know,
1: a little more frazzled than normal, but it was really fun talking to you. So thank you so much.
0: Today's conversation was edited by Jenny Casas and produced by Courtney Ballastier. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at wmfapodcast.com. Have a question or an author you'd love to hear on the show? Email me at hello at wmfapodcast.com and find me on Twitter and Instagram at cfballastier. And writers need feedback. If you're enjoying the show, please take a second to write me a review on iTunes. The WMFA logo was created by Unsold Studio, and our theme music is Jazz Dancer by Double Winter. Find them at doublewinter.bandcamp.com. WMFA is made in Pittsburgh by Courtney Ballastier LLC. All rights reserved.